Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. was the global leader in oil production in 1973. Last year, it regained its status as the top oil producer, and the reason is fracking. The U.S. oil and gas production has changed the global equation in lots of ways. Cheap energy at the gas pump and other places are obvious, but there's a financial and social implication that rolls out in a way that is really strategic sometimes and really unintended at other times. Bethany McLean looks under the hood of the economic drivers of the fracking industry in her new mini-book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany previously wrote about Enron in the book she co-authored, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I wanted to roll around an idea I know you're not so enamored with, energy independence. And this is something politicians love to talk about. It pulls through the roof. I was reading a quote from Frank Lutz, the Republican pollster, and he said, in the quarter century, I've polled American priorities and policies. I've never encountered an, a, an issue with such universal support. 92% of the country supports um, this kind of energy independence when, idea when you roll it out there. What, what, what do you think about energy independence? That's a stunning number, and it's an, it's an interesting concept because presidents since the 1970s, whether Democratic or Republican, have talked about this idea of energy independence. And with the dawn of fracking, President Trump's administration has taken it a step further. They even talk about American energy dominance. The funny thing is, though, the concept is kind of a fraud. And what I mean by that is that back in the 1970s, when the Texas Railroad Commission set the price of a barrel of oil, there was validity to the idea of energy independence. But now the price of a barrel of oil is set on global markets. No matter how much oil we're producing here in this country, the price that Americans pay at the pump is going to be determined by global events beyond our control. The notion that we are somehow free of that is is an illusion. On top of that, it's, it's a global economy. And so even if an energy independence at its kind of grandest is this idea that we don't need trouble spots like the Middle East anymore, and now we can just look away and walk away and leave them to their problems because we don't need their oil. The problem is that's not true either because our trading partners in Asia, which make our economy run, rely on Middle Eastern oil for their energy. And and so in a global interconnected e- economy, there's no just shutting your eyes and, and walking away. So if you're doing things in the name of this goal that is an illusion, it's it's kind of crazy. And it's not like our politicians actually follow a set of policies that would result in this theoretical idea of energy independence because President Obama lifted the uh, export controls on oil and gas. President Trump seems to want to dabble in the strategic oil reserve for for Iran reasons. There, there's all sorts of things they do that act completely outside that. Total incoherence. America has never had an energy policy. And people who like that say who wants the government dictating how energy should be used. At the same time, energy is still critical to life. It's been the, 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 the cause of victories in World wars and access to energy has determined so much of the shape of the world. And it still does, even if in our modern society, it's not uh, as visible anymore. And you would think that it would be smart to have some form of coherent energy policy. 
but we don't. You're right. <laughs> How did we stumble into this, um, you know, uh, oil and gas boom if we didn't have a coherent energy policy? Well, that is the great side of America, really. And of course, I have lots of skepticism that comes with this. But it really was entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs from Aubrey McClendon, who I profile in the book, to a guy named Harold Hamm, who sought to get oil and gas from places in the earth that had never yielded it before. And so in that sense, it's a powerful story of entrepreneurship. Now, you mentioned um, your friend Aubrey McClendon in this book. He's profiled. He's a larger-than-life character and seems to exemplify the good and the bad about the gas shale industry. Um, Tell us a little about him. So he's one of those larger-than-life characters that, as a journalist, you just hope you can find because you stumble across these people and they just prove that old adage that truth is stranger than fiction over and over again. McClendon isn't the guy who was the technological pioneer behind fracking. But he's the guy who pioneered the other essential part of the business, which was raising literally tens of billions of dollars in capital from investors and getting them to fund this American shale boom. And that's so important because the industry doesn't make money. And it's taken an enormous amount of funding, people, investors willing to put their money in it to make this thing happen. And it was Aubrey McClendon who was just the world's greatest salesman for fracking. A guy um, I talked to early on in my research was a, a investor in, in New York. And he said he was a skeptic about McClendon and a skeptic about fracking. And he still said to me, I never let Aubrey McClendon in here for a meeting because if I had, it wouldn't have, we would have bought a ton of stock and it would not have ended well. <laughs> so from 2008 to 2012, you say he raised $33 billion in investment. That's yep. a, that's a, getting a lot of money. And there was actually even more than that because his company, Chesapeake Energy, did these, dare I say it, Enron-esque deals under the surface to raise even more money. So the real sum was actually about $60 billion. And yet the company throughout those years never produced free cash flow. Let, why, why is that? Because it would seem like, uh, you know, if you're getting gas out of the ground, you would start making money. Uh, why, <laughs> right. why, do, why doesn't the industry make money? Well, a, a big part of the reason is a technical one, actually, and it's because fracked wells have a very fast decline rate. So the amount of oil or gas that they produce in year two is way, way less than the amount they produced in year one, like 80% less. So the business is on a treadmill requiring constant reinvestment in order to maintain or grow your, your production. And so the question that really is at the heart of this book is, if firms could no longer raise these immense gobs of capital from investors, what would the American shale boom look like? It would be a lot smaller than it is today. I'm talking with Bethany McLean about her book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. So in Aubrey McClendon's case, he was a landman, uh, as it's called in the industry. He went out there and tried to get rights for land, which is what you had to keep doing again and again and again because the wells don't deliver much oil or gas. Essentially true, yes. And it does. That also helps explain why fracking has taken off in the United States and hasn't taken off in other parts of the world because in the U.S. people own their mineral rights under their land and that's not true elsewhere in the world. And so that's given individual citizens around the country an incentive to lease their land because they can get the money from it. That 
that has also really sharply divided communities. Um, I'd recommend my friend Eliza Griswold's book, Amity and Prosperity, which explores just how fracking has literally fractured a community because you end up with haves and and have-nots. But yes, Aubrey was a landman, and he specialized in acquiring just packages of land so that he could drill baby drill, as the old saying goes. So he took all these packages of land and kept drilling on them, and people kept giving him billions of more dollars to do this. Yeah. Now, on the um, equation side of the people who are giving the billions of dollars, I mean, they can add, they can subtract. They're pretty clever people, I'm sure. They see that this guy is not necessarily making money. Well, the history of capitalism is rife with examples of people pouring billions of dollars into things that lose money. And sometimes it works and they end up making money and sometimes it it, it doesn't. So the bet has always been on the part of optimists that a technological improvement is going to make fracking profitable, that, that the profits are right around the corner. So that's the bet that people have been willing to take thus far over the decade that the industry has really existed that has not proven to be true. Well, um, are the people who are supplying the capital then losing money all the time in this industry? So there's a weird dynamic in this industry which helps explain how how Wall Street works. And so people are not people have made a lot of money. Executives have made a lot of money because the public market where their stocks are traded have has has rewarded executives for growing production regardless of whether or not um, the production is making money and their compensation has been tied to production growth. So company executives have been able to make a lot of money despite the fact that the companies they run don't produce money. And people who have funded these business like giant private equity firms have been able to make a lot of money as well by taking these companies public or by selling one to the other. But it's as one private equity executive even said to me, it's it's a game of musical chairs. All right. And it's, it sounds kind of like a pyramid screen, kind of like uh, the subprime mortgages or some other kind of thing that was going there is on? A, there's a Ponzi scheme-like aspect to fracking, yes, in that it constantly requires an infusion of new capital in order to keep going. Now, um, you do profile people who are pessimistic uh, in the book about the industry, um, David Einhorn. Uh, he wants to short sell the industry all the time. Right. And he hasn't won yet. He's lost. No, that's it. Well, people have won in the last couple of years. The public markets have become, in the last year in particular, become very skeptical about fracking because of this lack of profitability. So this dynamic where people were willing to believe that the profits were going to show up eventually is has actually been changing. But thus far, fracking has been more resilient than even its greatest proponents would ever have dreamed. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, but chief among them was the use of fracking in an area known as the Permian Basin, um, which is the area around Midland, Texas. Long, long, a big oil-producing region in this country, but people thought it was basically dried up. And then the frackers came, and the Permian has become, some people think it's one of the biggest oil fields in in, in the world. Um, Others will tell you that the expectations of the Permian are are overblown, but people even call it Permania. The price of um, an acre of land has skyrocketed from around $10,000 an acre to as much as $100,000 an acre now. How does that how does the price of the land and drilling all these wells equate with the price of oil or gas where is the is there a consistent break even point in this industry there there is not and the factors that 
that the factors that cause oil prices to be what they are are so multi- so so manifold that it's 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 actually very difficult to link it to to any one thing. But that concept of the break-even price is a really interesting thing because you will have company executives saying, "We can make money when the price of oil is thirty-five dollars a barrel." And then you go to their corporate financial statements, and they're losing tons of money when the price of oil is at sixty dollars a barrel. And we think, wait, 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 this doesn't this doesn't add up. This, this so. And the truth is, there is no one single break-even price because every well is different. And so, you the idea that there is one break-even price is a fallacy. Uh, the um, if. The price of oil, though, went up a lot. They would start making money. If the pr- we went back to $100 a barrel, everything would be grand, wouldn't it? Well, Is that what people are betting on? It's an interesting question as to whether it would be grand because it seems on the surface that it should be. Yet during 2014, when the price of oil was over $100 a barrel for most of the year, the industry still lost money. And the reason why is that part of the cost of drilling are the service costs, hiring the rig, doing the drilling, and the costs of that tend to escalate as the price of oil escalates because the amount of drilling um, escalates too and these the the, peop, the service providers are in way more demand so that's when they make their money and so a hefty portion of the cost of drilling escalate as oil prices escalate thereby wiping out some of what should be those beautiful profits well that does the this, that makes the whole industry look crazy i mean it just looks like it's a place where you could never make make money well, on some level, it, it, it is, right? But but I was – one of the failures of this book is that I set out to resolve this question. How can an industry that is literally changing geopolitics be resting on such an un- unstable financial foundation? And I wanted to answer how unstable is that financial foundation. And I found it a very difficult question to answer in the end because the – the one thing I learned is that everybody who's tried to predict the direction of the energy industry over time has one thing in common, which is that they, they've all been wrong. And so, so, and it actually is possible that technological advances could make profitable what has not been profitable, but it, but it is not looking that way. Is it true that if Wall Street started holding back some of this money that they are lending into this crazy industry, that the whole thing would collapse? I don't know if it would collapse. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. Um, I think the question is actually more existential. And what I mean by that is that we are now banking on this idea that we are this huge producer of oil and natural gas and that that's going to continue into the foreseeable future. What if it doesn't continue? What if it turns out just to be a red herring, a flash in the pan? What if the level that's sustainable is way, way less than it is today? And we're making all these grand plans around something that turns out not, not, not to exist. I'm talking with Bethany McLean. She's the author of Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with Bethany McLean about her new book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Before the break, we were talking a bit about uh, this industry that you know doesn't exactly make money and why Wall Street does it. I wanted to ask a question about what Wall Streeters think is going on in the industry when it comes to renewables and things like that. Do they see this as a factor that is going to edge out the industry? Is that why everybody is peddling so hard now to beat renewables? Is there, a, is there an idea here? I'm going to answer that in two ways. I think most of Wall Street does not and doesn't even think about renewables because Wall Street has become, maybe it always was, such a short-term engine that the idea that they can think past the tips of their noses into what might be coming down the pike two years from now, I don't think that that happens anymore. They're looking at, at, at numbers next quarter, production growth next quarter. They're not thinking about renewables in 10 years. That said, some of the really smart private equity investors um, are thinking about renewables. And I was really stunned in talking to these people that their big question is when. And they're really trying to figure it out because when you know when the dawn of the era of renewables is, is when the price of oil and natural gas goes into a a secular decline from which it never recovers. And then this is over. But the question of when uh, for renewables is, is a big, complicated one, probably more difficult than forecasting the future price of oil. All right, but there is somebody out there who thinks that this is coming down the pike, and um, and um, I don't know. Strategically, sometimes it looks like the United States is going so slowly on this, but other places in the world are going so fast. And well, that worries me a lot, actually, because I the question of renewables is a when, not not an if, and I worry that we are pounding our chests about American energy dominance and celebrating our success in the world as it used to be, and missing the chance to be the leaders in the world as it's as it's going to be. I don't think anybody would call us leaders in 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 renewables. Um, I think China is quite a bit ahead of us, um, and I think I think that's that's frightening. Was anybody in the industry ever scared by um, Bill McKibben and the 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 idea that um, you know all that we're going to pull we're going to get the divestment thing going? And he said recently in the Guardian, we've got eight trillion dollars that people are not investing in these things. Is anybody scared of that out there? People should be scared about it, but I don't know that it's a factor in current thinking as much as much as it should be. And there's another question too, which is who cleans up the mess that's left behind when oil and gas drilling go away? There's this concept of stranded assets, all of the infrastructure that supports our use of fossil fuels, and who has to pay the cleanup bill if the industry goes away? And what if it's happening on leased land from the United States government? Right, right. And I think those are those are really fascinating questions because one question you will hear a lot about renewables or one comment you'll hear is, well, it's only cost competitive because they're subsidized. That's debatably true these these days, less true than it once was. But the truth is we don't weigh – we don't count all the subsidies that the oil and gas industry gets in terms of um, the water costs that are used in fracking, um, the environmental costs, the, uh, the health care costs that citizens who live near these wells sometimes – have to have to bear those are implicit subsidies to the oil and gas industry, but they're they're not counted. And there's no game plan for how to fix any of this. <laughs> no, <laughs> a game no. plan? Are you kidding? No. <laughs> <laughs> when it's gone, it's no. no. That, that's the answer to that question. Um, I was also interested in kind of the the global strategy of all this um, and the implications. Uh, we've been doing this. 
at a time when uh, gas prices are so low um, and uh, we've been encouraging Saudi Arabia to keep the gas prices low, uh, does this make any sense? I mean, wouldn't we want to, if we truly wanted energy independence and things, uh, we want to we well, hold on or sell high? Well, I quote Charlie Munger at the end of the book. And for people who don't know, Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's famous sidekick, one of the greatest investors who ever lived and an incredibly wise man. And I heard he was interested in this question. So I called him up and he was happy to talk about it. And his view is precisely yours, that we rely on hydrocarbons, not just for energy use, but also they are a key ingredient in the fertilizers we need to feed our population. They are they are our security, right? Not just for energy, but our f- food security. And what on earth are we doing drilling all this stuff out of the ground as fast as we can and selling it at low prices where the industry doesn't even make money when thus far there really aren't there isn't a replacement for hydrocarbons in certain really essential areas of modern life including including in fertilizer. And if we are really planning for the future would be holding on to what we have, not drilling it out of the ground and selling it overseas. And it's it's an interesting and contrarian argument. And we're selling it to places like China. We never used to sell oil to China. Now we sell $10 billion in oil to China every year and gas. And they're our biggest right. gas customer. Right. And I think people don't fully understand, no one fully understands the implications of the United States becoming a petrostate. And it has economic um, implications too. It always used to be that low oil prices were good for this country, right? And now it's not quite as clear because low oil prices mean many recessions in parts of the country that depend on oil and gas drilling, and so it's 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 a it's it's a way murkier world going going forward than I think people understand. So, would the United States sit down with, uh, say, Saudi Arabia and Russia and? and think about cutting production, and that would be a good thing. Well, th- th- we have no mechanism for doing that, right? right? So the oil industry in these in those countries is state-owned, and the state can tell it what to do. The American oil and gas industry is thousands of small entrepreneurs with no government control. So there's no mechanism for the government to tell pe- companies to stop drilling. Isn't that um, part of the Charlie Munger problem and equation that we're uh, unique that we don't have a state-owned oil and gas industry. Right. And in many ways, if you believe in the power of entrepreneurship and the power of capitalism, that's a good thing. That's that's the fact that people, that that, that it's not state-owned and that people stand to make enormous profits if they do this correctly, although they've made enormous profits, you could argue, by not doing it correctly, but um, um, as part of what has has led to the technological developments that has, that, that, that that has, that has powered this industry, but but there's a downside to it too. Does the government have any tool to shape its entrepreneurs? Can it start buying oil and gas off them and stick it into the strategic reserve and the, the, uh, do the, something like that? The government could have a lot of power if they chose if they chose to do it. I've thought that if, and this is it, natural gas is, is controversial environmentally, but so I'm not saying this wouldn't cause issues on, on 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 a different front. But if, for instance, you really wanted energy independence, what you would do is convert as much of our transportation infrastructure to natural gas as you possibly can. Because unlike oil, which is which is complicated as we've been discussing, we really do have a lot of cheap natural gas in this country and, and a lot of it. And so if you wanted this mythical notion of energy independence, you would be thinking about natural gas. 
I'm talking with Bethany McLean about her book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany uh, was co-author of The Smartest Guys in the Room about Enron. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to change gears entirely and talk about the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival. Stay with us. Well, I, you know, I'm still stuck on this strategy thing. I mean, it sounded like President Obama definitely had a nub of a strategy with natural gas. He wanted to promote that and wanted to, you know, essentially drive coal out of out of business and, you know, promote national natural gas. Was that a good idea? Is this um, um, the, I don't know, the, 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 the natural gas good idea? Well, I think people... People generally believe natural gas is cleaner than coal, and it has contributed to a big reduction in carbon emissions in this country, despite our refusal to sign the Kyoto Accords. We have reduced carbon emissions sharply, and that's in large part due to the switch um, to natural gas. But that really wasn't policy so much as it was the government getting out of the way of what was happening in the industry. In other words, nobody built a natural gas-fired plant instead of a coal-fired plant because they were told to do it by the government. They did it because of fracking natural gas was cheaper. It was the economic decision. So it wasn't a policy decision so much as it was an economic one. And there is a big debate around natural gas and whether it really is this bridge fuel to a cleaner future or whether it's actually dirtier than coal in its own ways because of its emissions of of, of the leakage of something, of methane, which is more dangerous for the environment in some ways than carbon. So so natural gas is not uncontroversial environmentally either. How much of it is there? Uh, do, do, do these frackers think that we can have it forever? Is there, that the there's, there's a lot of it. So oil is, it's really unclear what the oil picture is, how much is recoverable at anything approaching an economic price. Natural gas, we have a lot of it. We have at least 100 years of it and at really low prices. Um, some, uh, not quite the lowest in the world. Um, Cutter is, is lower, but among the lowest in the world. Well, should there be more discussion about natural gas and its effect on the environment here and what we're – and our, our strategy that the, the Obama if we, administration if we, – If we were a culture that planned for the future, yes, there would be a lot of discussion around these questions. All right. Um, do, do you talk to politicians about this? Do, do, they, do you think any of them have thought it through? The politicians have not thought it through because they believe that what is happening today will be happening tomorrow, right? And that's a human tendency to say what is will be. And so because we've been producing this plethora of natural gas and oil, the tendency – politicians believe that's what it's – we're, we're going to be producing more and more oil and natural gas for the foreseeable future. They don't want to hear about or don't comprehend – bumps in the road that may that may make this more of a red herring than a than a sustainable future is there um any even idea to capture the the profits there are no profits to capture i guess so the the, the government can't make money on this either no no but there is an interesting question though if wall street stopped funding the industry would the government want to fund the industry in order to keep our production um, levels high and that's an interesting question for the future Well, we'll keep an eye on what's happening in the oil and gas industry. Thanks for writing such an interesting book and kind of revealing the underbelly of the financial underpinnings of this whole thing. Thank you so much for having me on. Bethany McLean is the author of Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about week two of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for a delayed edition of Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, our global citizen friend who lets you know how to have an international good time. Nari, how are you? I'm doing well, Jerome. It's great to be here again. <laughs> well, we didn't get on the air on Friday, but we have an event that is ongoing through January 27th in the city, and it has brought puppets from all over the world to Chicago. Uh, absolutely. We're going around the world, and Blair Thomas and the Chicago International Puppet Theater uh, Festival are taking us all over the world. Of course, we're going to, there's going to be things coming in from Israel, from Argentina, and other parts of the world. It's going to be a whirlwind, whirlwind experience. All right. Blair Thomas is with us, founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, as is Yael Rosuli, puppeteer and cabaret artist from Israel. Her show Paper Cut was at the first weekend of the festival. Great to see you both. Glad to be here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Blair, what is this, the third time around for the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival? It is. This is the third time out with our festival, and uh, it's uh, we've had a great opening weekend here, and people are coming out. We have over 11 different countries represented this year, which is uh, up from the last year's, and um, uh, coming with almost 100 different performances pushing through the weekend. This is one of the great borderless art forms. If ever there was a, a, a means of expression that was meant for globalized audiences, it's got to be this. I would say so, yeah, for sure. And uh, one thing about puppetry is the international community is pretty intimate and small, and we practitioners, we know each other. We know artists in other countries, and, and, and uh, I think you could say that the unique thing about contemporary puppetry is that there's this mixture of traditions and practices from other cultures that puppeteers are all incorporating into their own work. Like So the Japanese Bunraku style of puppetry is ubiquitous. It's, it's Many different puppeteers use it, and, uh, and we become influenced by each other's work, and so it translates and it crosses borders. Um, now, the Japanese style you were just talking about, mm -hmm. is that where they, they sit on the uh, rolling boxes? No, that, that's a, it's a form of that, yes. It is, which is the, the bunraku essentially refers to a, a, a doll-sized figure that's, that's operated uh, in, a, in, a, in a fully anatomical way. And, um, and so it, that has been used in a bunch of different ways by many different artists across the, the globe. Now, Yael, your, your show, you developed it a while ago, and it sounds like you're really a singer and a, um, yeah. <laughs> a singing I mean, artist, I, but I'm, you developed a yes. puppet show. Well, I was lucky enough to come across puppets uh, pretty early on. I used to be a classical opera singer, and then I went on to study theater design, and quite by chance, I found myself in France, in Charleville-Mézières, where we also met mm -hmm. there, and... Um, um, and I just discovered puppetry. First of all, it seemed to me like an art form that you can really combine all the different art forms. Because I didn't want to choose. I didn't want to just be just be an opera singer or just be a designer or just be a, a director. Or, like I was really looking for something truly interdisciplinary. And also that you can form your own voice. Because when you're a young artist, a young actress or singer, you're very much uh, afraid of this uh, notion that you might be spending your life waiting by the phone to ring or, you know, or like, you know, jumping between auditions and, you know, and all the frustration of that. And puppetry really allows you to take things in your own hands. And, <laughs> Literally. Yes. <laughs> and form your, you know, form your own, uh, you know, small gang of people and artists you want to work with. Um, and Papercut was a show I made, you know, at that fragile moment where I finished my studies uh, in Jerusalem, where I come from at the School of Visual Theater. And I was out in the world, which meant like I was waitressing. 
and, <laughs> and you know, thinking, okay, what is my life going to be like as an artist? Um, and I was trying to find a budget to make the big show I wanted to make that was inspired by Hitchcock films that I started seeing at a very young age. Left a very strong impression on me. Uh, and I wanted to make a kind of cinema in low-tech, you know, with a, with a cast of actors, with a very complex scenery that changes. I could just could not find the budget to do it. And I ended up, like, uh, working on the file for it. And, and just I started just playing around. Uh, I, I, I had all these books uh, of the great stars of, from the 40s and 50s, the Hollywood glamour era. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to make a model of the show I'm going to make. But then yeah. while I was doing that, I just discovered this technique that was just, uh, well, basically, I made the show between my living room and the kitchen. And now um, it's a show that's been touring in uh, 27 countries. And you can pack it up in a couple suitcases and two, hit the road. Two oh. suitcases. Which is ideal for the presenter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, Yael, I understand that you also do a cabaret kind of a show. And can you give us a little bit of a cappella sample of what you do? Uh, yes, I can. Um, yeah, can you just get this going? Yeah. Okay, okay, here we go. Yes, a good man is hard to find. You always get the other kind. And just when you think he's your one best pal, you look around and find him with some other gal. Then you'll rave and you'll crave to see that man laying deep down in his grave. But if you're Man is nice. Take my advice, girls. Hug him in the morning. Kiss him late at night. Give him plenty kissing and be sure you kiss him right. Cause a good man nowadays is hard to find. Oh, yes, a good man nowadays is hard to find. Yay. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. It's, you know, it's so great to hear you sing and because it's true in puppetry. It's the, the, the artist gets to do pretty much anything they want to do. And I mean, you're gifted as a singer, so it's fantastic. And you, but you can bring uh, live music. You can bring uh, drawing and, and art yeah. design, sculpting, and, and then you get to perform the whole thing at once. It's just, Yeah, you know, and that's why so many people like come, uh, puppeteers, sometimes they're animators or they're, they're designers or they're dancers, you know. Right. We're talking with Yael Razuli and Blair Thomas, founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, and it is happening at 19 different venues across the city through January 27th. You can see all of the shows at chicagopuppetfest.org. But um, let's talk about a couple that are coming up here, Blair um, now, there's one called Axis. Uh, what, what's going on with Axis? Sure. It's uh, by a company from Belgium, and it's a form that's uh, considered to be object theater is what they call it. And uh, Anya Slipos, who's the the main conceiver of the work and performs in it, is is a kind of a grand dame of this form. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've met her many, many years ago uh, in, in France, and uh, and she also came and, and taught a workshop in Jerusalem. And she's really the, she's considered one of the masters of object theater. It's very full of humor and can get very dark also very yeah, quickly. Satire. Yes. A very, and the, the, 
it's a storytelling technique that she presents objects in the course of the storytelling that start to tell the story in a way that words cannot. So the name of her show is Access the Importance of Human Sacrifice in the 21st Century. Yes. It, it alludes to the darkness and the, the, the irony. In, in her narrative, there's a, a bourgeois couple who are uh, living in their home in comfort and a, a world revolution starts to occur and you can hear the screaming and shouting in the streets and they they are – trying to figure out whether they should go and get the, the kind of tea that they really like, really like to have. <laughs> and, uh, and in the end... Is there any analogies to today, though? They're, they're brought before the tribunal court in The Hague for crimes against humanity. And, and uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it doesn't end well for them. But it's a very – it's a wonderful journey. It's, and it, with, the husband finds the escape by going into the refrigerator and hiding – all right. <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of the things that Agnès does, like it, for her, the importance of the puppeteer as as a character is very important. Like it's not some someone who's hi- hidden away. Yeah. She's really there, and and all the objects they come to serve a purpose, also um, to tell the story of the characters. Yeah. And so Axis is at the Chopin Theater on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the 25th, 26th, and 27th. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sounds like a great show. Yeah. In the, in the evening, of, uh, also playing in, downstairs in the Chopin Theater is Schweinhund, which is, comes from an wow. artist from, from New York, Andy Gockel. And it's a, a, a wordless piece that tells the story of a uh, homosexual man's experience being abducted by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp. In a very palpable way, I have to say, yeah, the story. Yeah, it's a very the, powerful piece. I saw it yeah. in Montreal a couple of years ago. Yeah, and it's a he, it's it's a very simple technique that uses the Bunraku style puppet I referred to on a tabletop um, with video projection in front of it that creates this layered uh, storytelling, um, and it's it's gorgeous, a gorgeous piece. There's a lot more of the video storytelling and the the incorporating technology and into. Um, puppetry these days. Most of the things I show up are like that. Puppetry is a medium kind of askews fancy techniques of digital and film. But when they use uh, projections in the, in the live performance, it's it's part of the layer of the of the visual language that's telling the story, and uh, and it's and it's frequently used. But it's uh, often with a, a a part of the hand is still evident in Schweinhund, for example. It's the film projection is of uh, hand-drawn animation. So it, it doesn't look like it comes from some sort of synthetic world that's able to create something that, that is away from the human touch. Um, it's, so it becomes still very powerful because you're in, you're in the theater watching it live, the puppet show, and you're watching the, the magic come to life with the manipulation of the object. And that's the thing that makes puppet theater so unique. Uh- uh, Blair, it seems like it's a very intensive experience that you have really put together a lot of really strong shows, bunch next together. And uh, uh, I'm wondering about your curation process and the challenges that you're facing. It's a two-year cycle. Right. But, uh, but what, what kinds of challenges do you face? Well, there's, uh, it's interesting. We've this in our third year here. This is a collaborative festival. So I, you know, I'm, I'm greatly indebted to all our, our over a dozen different institutions in the city, like the Chicago Shakes, the, the Museum. In Contemporary Art, Art Institute, Lynx Hall, Logan Center, the Neo Futurist. There's a lot of organizations that are working with us 
it was designed like that. So how how to share the the, the burden of it so that I can create a, a, a institutional presence for puppetry in in Chicago, but in in truth for the U.S. We are the largest festival in the U.S. Uh, unlike wow. our counterparts in Europe, where you're tripping over festivals in programming. There's so many of them. Wow. We do not have the funding for that in the U.S. And and uh, there are small festivals that do happen for sure, and but they're less than half a dozen. And uh, so how can the, the art flourish? How can it develop? How can our culture be influenced by this, by this practice? And how can the practitioners who do the work gain influence? One of the obstacles that we're really facing is the challenge of, of visa acquisition to get artists into our country. And it's an astoundingly Byzantine system. It's, it's, it's particularly difficult now because the State Departments are all kind of there's a certain kind of attention that requires everyone to be very scrupulous. And so the easiest you've thing You've had to do, two shows you've had to cancel this yeah, time around? We, we definitely we had two shows that were in the program and, and, and were canceled. And we managed to get national acts to come in and fill them. It's an interesting thing. Like I, I consider myself as an artist. I approach this as I'm, I'm a puppeteer. And, and uh, making the festival is, is kind of an opportunity to build the, the, the hunger for the work for artists, I mean, for audiences in America. I find that the, not only do we not really get support, financial support from our government to do the work. Like that's one thing. We say, okay, I got it. We got to go get our support somewhere else. But to actually have part of the government being uh, uh, setting up roadblocks and barriers to overcome is like, oh my God, you're actually working against me. And the the challenge is, is... is complex. You, we we get a bunch of lawyers. We hire them. And we have to we have to con, we have to get the artists in the other countries to understand how much work they have to do. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's like a master's degree getting that visa. Yeah, it's just like so the, okay, this is the big bad wolf you're talking to. You can't just fill the form out with one or two sentences. You have to overload it with all these justifications of, 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 of people's testimonies from people saying why you are distinctive and why there's no one in the U.S. who can do what you do. And, and right. yes, this, in, the, the model is set up for like, can we get someone else to play the second violin in this section? Or are you going to bring that guy over from Czechoslovakia? You know, it's like, and that system is, that's, there's, that's just one part of this problem that Man. makes it complicated. But so... Just to say, you can see why there's not any puppet festivals <laughs> in the United States because it's really difficult, and and all presenters, it's not just puppet festivals, all international presenters are facing these challenges in the U.S. There, there must be some kind of puppeteer's revenge. Create a lawyer puppet that goes in and argues for visas, and it's just as absurd as as the people who are visa right, officials. Right, but right. then when you're here, when you got it, when you're here, you just want to, you know, you know, you want to give all you've got, and you really like. I, I really think it's it's an opportunity. Um, I mean, for me, if 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 there can be someone, you know, a, a young or, or even a not young, you know, a American a puppeteer artist that would sit in my show and be like, oh, that's what I want to do. And that's the kind of and that's the direction. And, and also to encourage people, you know, to find the ways to travel and to see and to see other work elsewhere and to, you know, and to change perceptions about puppetry, what puppetry sure. is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have the experience when in the early 80s when the International Theater Festival in Chicago brought El Comediance from Barcelona who brought in a theater style that b- blew Chicago out of the water with no one had seen any. We was all Steppenwolf and Wisdom Bridge and very realism. Awesome work. But it's it's not 
what the imaginative work of of a company who uses masks and live music and non-narrative storytelling. And that so inspired me to see that work. I started the Red Moon Theater from that. I mean, that was really the the impetus to do that. And so it's like, how can I how can I pass that down to another artist who who are now in Chicago working as a waitress somewhere and 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 developing their art and their I've had vision shows that changed my life, that changed my path, that changed my you know the, the decisions where I was going. So that's that's a big thing, you know. Yeah. And it's I think we, we've groomed, we've got a groomed theater audience, and you've been puppeteering for thirty years here and successfully acclimating people to the puppet world. It's and we can support something like yeah, this. Yeah, that's it's true. I think we have an indigenous audience in Chicago for the puppet for theater, and that's and so I feel like they can support it. You know, it's a, it's a fortunate, it's a fertile place. All right, there's a staggering number of things you can see at the Chicago International Puppet Theater. Go online and check it out at chicagopuppetfest.org. There's real live things that you can see. There's Orville and Wilbur Wright on how to build a flying machine, a man with uh, – who has carefully crafted wooden puppets yes. and, and uh, we will craft wooden planes on stage. Right in front of you. That's all, only on Wednesday at the, at the Theater on the Lake. Wow, that sounds terrific. How yeah. to build a flying machine. Um, Lots more. What what else is there? Well, there's the there's the free neighborhood tour, which is something that we're is in playing in several different places, uh, and we have Ponsley and Cresion, who are from Puerto Rico, with really fantastic foam uh, puppets that are really uh, abstract, bizarre, and fun, along with a traditional Polichinelle uh, performance, which is uh, the the from Sicily. Um, so he, he is what. Punch and Judy became in, in the English-speaking world, and this guy is the master of it, and with doing very, very funny Lotsi, uh, great work. I wanted to ask a question about um, developing your puppet. You make your own puppets. It's got to be sometimes really intense to to sit with that character and make a. Uh, puppet. I mean, sometimes people, you know, I mean, there's a show that has created plastic bags and, and uses plastic bags as a puppet that's, right. that's going on here at the Chicago Shakes. Exactly. And But but sometimes it takes a long time, I imagine, to get the thing right. Yep. Yep, for sure. The creation of the puppet by the puppeteer is, uh, uh, is done with an intention. And when the puppet is done, the puppet has its, its, its own will in life. It, as well as part of the intention, and you start to perform with it, and you're like, oh, this puppet is, it wants to do this. It's, oh, for sure. Yeah. There's like the puppet you design, the puppet you make, and the puppet you perform with. Those are three different puppets. Yes. Wow. Mm. And it's, uh, <laughs> this is, this is a, a magic, it's sort of the, a wisdom of the material world that is beyond human I- interaction. Like this is, it, they come from a different place, they exist in a different place, and they're not, they're non-human. And they and they reveal and mirror back to us. We, you know, a puppet is performing on the stage and it doesn't care to be on the stage. It has no interest in doing what it's acting to do. But you think, oh my God, the puppet is so sad. No, that you're looking in a mirror. The puppet is a mirror. You are. It's that sadness is with you. You are part of the creation of the performance because the puppet is 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 only an image. It's it's a metaphor that that the audience responds to. Well, Yael, what's next for you? What are you thinking? What are you working on? Oh, I'm very excited now because I've just Mm -hmm. arrived to the U.S. uh, Mm -hmm. So I was uh, performing up in New York now. But I'm actually here for five months because I'm a guest professor at at Trinity College, at UConn, University of Connecticut, and the Eugene O'Neill Center. So I'm actually here on a mission to bring (laughs) a contemporary puppetry to, uh, uh, you know, young American artists. And how is your work received in Israel? 
Um, it's great. I don't get to There's a great deal of sarcasm so and mockery and humor to your work, is at least the impression that I have. And I'm wondering, Israel being such a serious society, how do they respond to this? Well, I mean, in Israel, I mean, it's kind of, you know, um, countries that are in, uh, in, in constant conflicts, uh, their art tends to um, also be, I mean, in Israel, we don't have much of a tradition like you would have in Europe. So there's the disadvantages of that, but also there's a lot of freedom because um, you're not, you know, um, right. trying to keep up. You know, we don't have like like the Shakespearean tradition. You know, it's such a it's such a new country, and also people. Um, it, it tends to be very very creative, and also it's kind of it's it's similar to uh, the situation you have as an American artist, where you, you there is not much support, um, and then you are in then some you have a lot of underground going on and a lot of like people who are making who are really pushing through are doing it with a lot of with a lot of motivation and yeah i guess there's nothing really like playing for your audience back home you know <laughs> even if you play all over the world it's always very special to play there well i hope some people get out and get to know some puppets from around the world the chicago international puppet theater festival is through the 27th here in chicago there's 11 countries here 80 performances overall you can get more information at chicagopuppetfest.org. Thanks very much to Blair Thomas, founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, and Yael Rosuli, a puppeteer and cabaret artist from Israel. She was here with her show Paper Cut. And thanks, as always, to Nari Safavi for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. Thank you. Thank you very much. On Thursday, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moves its doomsday clock. The clock does what it sounds like. It tells us how close scientists think humanity is to global catastrophe. As of last year, the clock is at two minutes to midnight. That's the highest threat level since the beginning of the Cold War. We want to hear your thoughts this week. Did humanity move closer or farther from total destruction in 2019? Visit our Facebook or Twitter at WBEZ Worldview or visit WBEZ.org slash Worldview and submit your speculation for a chance to be on the air with us sometime this week. So check it out at WBEZ Worldview on social and WBEZ.org on Worldview. Do you think that humanity is closer or further from catastrophe than it was a year ago? Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.